Let's pray together. As we do, I want to go back to one of the verses Kathy read just a moment ago in John 14. And again, remind us what Jesus said so clearly here when he said, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in Jesus' name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. I don't know about you today, but as the one doing the speaking, that gives me great comfort. It gives me great assurance that that the Lord is going to accomplish what he wants to do among us today, that the Lord is going to teach us the things that he wants us to hear today, and he is going to seal to our hearts the things that he wants sealed to our hearts today. And so, fathers, we come before you now, having lifted our voices in song. Father, we, we want to come to you now. My prayer is that we would each and every one come to you with open hearts. Father, not just open ears to hear a sermon being preached, not just open eyes to see words and points and big ideas uh, displayed on a screen, but Father, open hearts deep down in the depth of, of who we are, who you have made us to be. Father, that place where, where you work on us from the inside out. And Father, my prayer, my, my primary request this morning is that you would be our teacher that the Holy Spirit would be the one to reveal truth, that the Holy Spirit would be the one to do any convicting, that the Holy Spirit would be the one to do the comforting and the, the assuring and, and the strengthening and the empowering. And Father, we thank you that the Holy Spirit is able to do all of that and more, meet each of us where we are. And Father, even as we're talking about in our study of, of evangelism, that the Holy Spirit is the one who shows us the first one to meet us where we are and help us take the next step. And Father, we're looking to you for that today. As we study your word. Fathers, we, as we sang earlier, we are living in times of desperation. Father, there, these are days when, when many people, all they know is doubt and fear. Father, we're worried about today. We're worried about tomorrow. We're worried about the day after that. We have burdens and questions and concerns and hopes. And Father, you know all of it and more. And, and in the middle of it all, you invite us once a week, each Sunday morning, to come together in this way. And and just rest in your presence. And so, Father, that's my prayer as well, that even as we listen, even as we learn, even as we seek to receive from you, you we will rest in you and the peace and the comfort and the assurance that you can give. Father, thank you that you know each of our names. Thank you that you know each of our stories. Thank you that you love each and every one of us beyond measure. And so, Father, as we do open your word now and we seek to receive from you, I pray that, as always, you will guide us in truth, I pray that as always you would guard us from error, from distraction, from misunderstanding. Father, I pray as always that you would deliver us from whatever it is that may be still stuck in our heart this morning that's going to, as it were, sort of obstruct the flow of, of your word and your truth in our lives. And Father, that in these moments together that we have now in your word, that you would above all else help us to see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we go to your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we go to your word. And Father, when we walk out these doors uh, into this beautiful day, but this still troubled world, Father, when we do that in a little while, may it be with fresh hope, new joy, and great, calm, singular assurance that come what may, Jesus reigns. It is him we love. It is him we seek. It is him we trust. And it is in his name that we pray, as all God's people said together, amen. Amen. You may be seated. And while you grown-ups are taking your seats, you boys and girls can slip on out for Children's Church. 
Uh, if you are our guest today, I don't know if we have guests with little kiddos in that five-year-old to second grade realm, but uh, if so, they are welcome to join uh, in that time of, of digging into God's Word in a fun way together, uh, just as we hope to do here, dig into God's Word and, and receive what not what I have to say, but what He has for us this morning. So if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, I want you to take your Bible out and meet me in John chapter 4. I want you to meet me in your Bible in John chapter 4, where this morning we are beginning another, a, a second mini-series, if you will, uh, under this initiative that we call Evangelism Shift. I hope you understand by now, if you've been with us, that we are not preaching or promoting a program, but that God has given us a program, or God has given us a paradigm through which we, as followers of Jesus, can learn more and more what it means to live every day as witnesses for Jesus Christ. Now, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we wrapped up the first of those series, just talking about uh, the idea of living as a witness, just, just beginning to dig into that. And today, as you can see, the, the title of this new series is The Journey, and I will be explaining that uh, here momentarily, and then we're going to walk through this story together. But again, the aim is to continue building on our understanding, on what God's Word has to say to each and every one of us, however long or however short we have been followers of Jesus, that right where we are, as we are, who we are as believers in Christ, we can bear witness to people for Him. As I said, we're going to do that in John chapter 4 this morning, and, and we're going to read it in just a couple of moments. But, but to sort of set up the message as well as, as where this next several weeks in this series is headed. Let me begin by saying that as followers of Jesus, I believe it would be safe for me to say, to assume, that all of us here this morning who know Christ understand that, that each time someone trusts Jesus as Savior, a brand new journey of faith begins. The Bible tells us that in 2 Corinthians 5. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creature. Old things have passed away. And new things have come. But what we may be, or at least I have probably through most of my Christian life been less aware of, less attentive to, is the fact that in the very same prayer where someone begins that journey of faith, where they repent of their sin and they trust Christ as Lord and Savior, in the very same prayer where that journey begins, another journey has reached its conclusion. Another journey has come to an end. And that is the journey from spiritually lost to spiritually found. The journey from spiritually lost to found. And over the next few Sundays, four of them in all, that is the journey that we are going to look at. And we're going to do so through the lives of four different, distinct New Testament characters whose journey to faith, journey from spiritually lost to found, they are compelling stories in their own right. They are unique rich stories in their own right, but we're also going to look at them because each of those four stories have much to offer us in growing in our understanding and ultimately our application of what it means to live as a witness, meeting people where they are and helping them with God's grace to take the next step. Now, the story before us this morning here in John chapter 4 is a story many of you are probably familiar with. We call it the story of the woman at the well. If it's new to you, you're about to find out, but many of us have probably heard this story before. We've probably heard multiple sermons on it. I think I've preached several on it myself, but, but we're going to try to come at it with fresh eyes and ears today in this vein of looking at the journey. And, 
And while it's a long story, I'm just going to tell you that right up front, 42 verses in all, it's a good story. And so we're going to start by reading it in our Bibles. You're going to follow along in its entirety. You can take a deep breath. You can offer a quick prayer. Lord, help me to pay attention all the way through 42 verses. And then when I get done reading it, as always, we will take a step back and walk through looking for some particular points in it. So here we are, John 4, verses 1 through 42. This is what the Bible says. Therefore, when the Lord, that's Jesus, knew that the Pharisees had heard that he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, his disciples were, he, Jesus, left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You've correctly said I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. Is this, not the Christ? this is not the Christ, is it? And they went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? 
Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And from that city many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word, and they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, as I often say, but probably mean today more Sundays than most, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot that we could look at and dig into in this story. But to make our study manageable, to to, to bring it together in a way that, A, I can actually say something that might be helpful, and you, B, might be able to follow along and glean something from it. What I've done with this story, uh, just know up front, there's a whole lot we're not going to get into. There's a whole lot we're not going to talk about. But what we are going to do, what I have done, is I have narrowed what I want to share with you this morning down under three categorical headings, and they are as follows. I'll give them to you up front to make them easy and memorable. They all begin with the letter L. They are as follows. First, we're going to talk about the lady. And then we're going to talk about the Lord. And then we are going to talk, as we always do, about the lessons that are in this story for us. We're going to look at the lady, the Lord, and the lessons. Starting, of course, with the lady, this woman at the well. Because here's the thing. It is easy, or at least I have found it easy in looking at this story many times before, to, to just sort of offhandedly assume that in the span of these 42 verses, we are being shown the entirety of her spiritual journey from lost to found. It's easy to look at a story like this and say, yeah, we got it from the beginning and we see its, its culmination. But what closer examination of this story reveals is that this woman's journey had been going on for a long time before she and Jesus ever met each other at Jacob's well. In fact, I believe that the text shows us that by the time Jesus showed up and said, woman, give me a drink, that she, that her journey in life, and it was her spiritual journey up to now, had had led her, had taught her at least three things. Her, Her journey to date had taught her three things. Number one, I believe that by the time she and Jesus met at the well, she had concluded religion is a joke. I believe she had concluded that religion, organized religion of any kind, is a joke. Because when Jesus, you see, when Jesus requested a drink of her, when he said, woman, give me a drink, in making that very simple direct statement, Jesus bulldozed a whole series of social fences that most people were never willing to touch. And and she acknowledges all of that if you look back in your Bible at verse 9. The Samaritan woman said after he asked for a drink, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? You see, in those days, for one thing, men didn't talk to women in public. It was just considered unacceptable. It was considered wrong. And yet Jesus did that. Not only that, not only in public did men not speak to women, rabbis certainly didn't mix with sinners. And by this time, Jesus was recognized as a rabbi, as a holy man, as a teacher of truth, at least by some, and this woman was everything that he wasn't in that respect. And rabbis, they didn't mix with messy, sinful people. They mixed with people who wanted to listen to them. 
and affirm them and, and follow them. But for Jesus as a Jew to address her as a Samaritan, well, that's the one that, that really took the cake because, because Jews, by and large, and they had for generations, viewed Samaritans as religious and racial half-breeds. You see, Samaritans had Jewish blood. They were, going back many, many generations, they were, like full-blooded Jews, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But somewhere along the way, we believe probably after their return from exile in Babylon, a whole other story we can look at another time, but many of the Jews who came back and resettled the land of Israel intermarried with Gentiles, intermarried with Canaanites. And so now they are people of mixed blood. They were looked at as racial half-breeds. And because of that, they were treated as religious half-breeds. And, and again, they didn't mix with one another. In fact, Jesus did something very unusual even by going through Samaria. It was the shortest route from northern Israel down south to Jerusalem, but, but good and faithful Jews, in order to avoid Samaritans, wouldn't ever go through there. They traveled around it, so they didn't even have to set foot in Samaritan territory. So Jesus is blowing up all kinds of rules here. Jesus is bulldozing all kinds of fences. And, and I think what had really what had really, I would say, jaded this woman toward religion is the fact. And I think you see this in verse 20, that, that even though both groups could, as I said, trace their bloodlines all the way back to Father Abraham, in verse 20, she is lamenting the fact that though they ostensibly worship the same God, they could not stand to do it together. They wouldn't mix with each other. Isn't that what she says? She says, our father worship in this mountain, and you people say it's in Jerusalem. We can't even agree on, on where to worship God. And I think when you understand that, then you go back and you read her question in verse 9 in a whole different light. You read it with an undertone of contempt, of resentment. How is it that you, being a Jew, talk to me? That's just not done. So I think that, first of all, her journey up to now had taught her, had convinced her, number one, religion is a joke. Number two, life is a grind. She had learned, she had decided that life is a grind. Probably many of us could add our amen to that, but this story bears it out for sure. Because you see, here's the thing. When verses 6 and 7 say that she had come to the well at midday, at noon, to draw water, we're, that's supposed to get our attention. The fact that she is coming to draw water in the middle of the day under the blistering Middle Eastern sun, because in those days, that's not what women did. Women would go to the well early in the morning for water. They would go late in the afternoon for water. Why? Because it wasn't so hot. But she came at noon. And we don't have to think real deeply to determine why. It's because of her spotty moral record. It's her, her multiple marriages, her blatant, obvious brokenness and sinfulness, so much so that not only does she as a Jew, or as a Samaritan, looked on, down upon by the Jews, she is ostracized by her fellow Samaritan women. I'm sure there had been a long, many, many occasions where she'd come to the well with them and was not spoken to, was not dealt with. Why? Because she's dirty and she's sinful. And I think that's almost surely why in verse 15 she was practically pleading with Jesus, sir, give me this water so I won't be thirsty and I won't have to come all the way here to draw. I'm just sick of it. I'm tired of the way life has turned out for me. Religion is a joke. Life is a grind. Thirdly, love is an illusion. I think she decided that love is an illusion. Look again at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered and said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, I know you have no husband. You've had five. And the one you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Why? Because she had become convinced there is no such thing as Mr. Right. Happily ever after really is just for fairy tales. And by this point in her life, however old, however long each of those marriages may or may not have been, I think what we're supposed to see here is that by this particular point in her life, she had settled for love that is transactional rather than relational. I'll give you what you want. I'll get out of it what I want. We'll have a relationship, but she's more lonely than ever. Love is an illusion. Now, let me ask you a question. Look at that list. You know anybody like that? Someone in your life whose story checks one, two, maybe all three boxes? Jaded toward religion, exasperated with life, completely convinced that love can't ever happen? Well, I think what this woman's, this lady's story up to this point shows us that that actually far from being an unlikely candidate for witness, I mean, if you know people like this, there, there may be many of them you're thinking, I'm not talking to them about Jesus, right? But I think what this lady's story shows us is, is that far from being an, an unlikely candidate to consider the claims of Jesus, what we're about to see is that each of her conclusions is actually an entry point for Jesus to step into her life, to build a, a conversation in which he could meet her where she was and invite her to take the next step. And so that's, with that in mind, I want to shift our attention now uh, away from the lady and to the Lord, the Lord Jesus and his part in this conversation where I would submit to you that perhaps the most notable thing about the entire approach and interaction that is Jesus' part in this encounter is what he didn't do. And what he didn't say, which was something along the lines of this. Look, lady, I am the only begotten incarnate son of God. You're clearly, clearly a hot mess of a sinner. So how about we just save each other a whole lot of time. You acknowledge your sin and repent. You put your faith in me and we can get on with it and share this good news with other people. In other words, you know what Jesus didn't do? He didn't jump straight to the gospel and demand a decision not what he did. It's not that that isn't at times perhaps appropriate, but what we need to see for our purposes this morning is that Jesus entered into a normal conversation with her, a normal conversation in which as they talked, he began to uncover, draw out clues about where she was in her spiritual journey. For example, in Jesus' approach to this conversation, one of the things I think we ought to take note of is the fact that his initiative got her attention. The fact that he took the initiative got this woman's attention. Because again, say what you will, think what you will about his request. Woman, give me a drink. I don't think it was quite as offensive, perhaps, as it sounds to contemporary 21st century ears. But the fact of the matter is this. Say what you will about the way he approached her. He did take the initiative. He did bridge the social boundary that other people wouldn't cross. And, and not only that, he spoke to her in a way that, that summoned more than just fine in reply or good. He spoke to her in a way that, that invited more. 
Now, I understand that not everybody we meet each and every day that we aim to enter into conversation with wants to talk to us or will want to talk to us. Not everybody you know will respond to that kind of initiative. But as I thought about that, it made me wonder, how many opportunities to bear witness have I missed? Standing, waiting in line for my coffee. Standing in the lumber or the hardware aisle at Menards. Sitting, watching my kids play on the playground. And I didn't even give a chance to bear witness because I wouldn't take the initiative. To, to strike up a conversation. An ordinary, normal conversation. I think what we need to see first and foremost is Jesus took the initiative. He was willing to get involved in conversation with someone else and learn about their life. That's the first thing we can see. I think we can also take note from Jesus' approach that his interest, his genuine interest in her stirred curiosity. His initiative got her attention, but it was his interest that stirred her curiosity. And one of the things that I have come to appreciate most about evangelism shift, having completed the, the first year, what we are now introducing to so many of you, is that evangelism shift opts for building relationships over memorizing formulas. I don't have to remember four, four things that I've got to get you to agree with and then invite you to pray a prayer. I don't have to follow a path of, of A to B to C to D. It starts with building relationships. And one of the reasons I like that is I think it gives credence to the notion that people don't care what you know till they know if you care. I mean, do you? Do you want to talk to people who you know don't care? I mean, why do you hang up on telemarketers all the time? Because you're a target. You're an audience. They're not calling you to build a friendship. And people know when that's what you're doing. They don't care what you know. They want to know, do you care? Am I a person? And do you care for me? Furthermore, I think what people are looking for in our day and age is do you care for me as I am, where I am? Am I okay to talk to just being me? People want to know that they're being seen and heard. And frankly, that's, that's why one of my favorite uh, observations of the story, again, something else I had never really thought about until uh, just this past week digging through it, but one of my favorite parts of this story is now uh, the point where when the woman clearly didn't want it to get into her dating history, right? Jesus brings that up. Uh, he's, he's going for this entry point of, hmm, five marriages, working on a six. That's something we could talk about. And so Jesus goes that way. She shuts him down. Okay, And yet, when she shuts Jesus down, he wasn't deterred. He just followed where she wanted to go. Look, the woman, verse 17, answered. She said, I have no husband. Jesus said, that's right. You have said this truly. Verse 19, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. I'm changing the subject. I want to talk to you about that. That's a little personal. I perceive you're a prophet. So let me ask you this. Here's what I want to talk about. Our fathers worship in this mountain. You Jews say it's in Jerusalem. And then Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And later on, verse 24, For God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now listen, don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say. Jesus knew that redemption was her greatest need, the confession of sin. 
trusting him as Savior. And, and he never, of all people, Jesus never lost sight of that as the destination, right? That's where we want to get. But by taking, here's what I see in it, by taking genuine interest in her and taking genuine interest in what interested her, it wasn't about him getting somewhere he wanted to go. I'm going to see where she wants to go and follow her there because that's how conversations work. He's going to follow her there. What happened? Well, she had room to, to listen, to trust, to think. Hmm, maybe there's more going on here than I, than I originally thought. By taking genuine interest in her, she had room to become curious, room to think, room to breathe, so that when the time finally did arrive, as it did in this instance, to reveal to her who he truly was, here's the third thing I see about Jesus' approach. By taking the initiative and expressing genuine interest, when he revealed his identity, it gave her hope. His identity, the revelation of his identity gave her great hope. Hope. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. I've read my Bible, the one who's called Christ. And when that one comes, he'll declare all things to us. He'll make, he'll make sense of the mess. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now at this point, wouldn't you know it, the disciples come and interrupt the conversation. And they were amazed and that he'd been speaking with a woman. And yet no one said, whom do you seek or why are you talking to her? And in that moment, that gave the woman a chance to sort of break away. Now, it's interesting, Jesus didn't go chase her down, but she left her water pot. She goes back into the city and said to the men, why? Because those are the people in the city that she knew, and said, come, see a man who's told me everything I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? Now, I don't know, I can't say with certainty at this point that this woman was saved, that she had truly In fact, if I were forced to decide, forced into a corner, I'd say probably not yet. But what was she doing? Well, she was certainly entertaining the possibility that this might be the guy. That maybe Jesus, this Jesus from Nazareth, is the Messiah. And, And of course, I firmly believe that by verse 42, that decision was made. Listen, while each person's journey from lost to found, it unfolds at a different pace. It involves different steps. It has its own unique twists and turns. I think what what Jesus' approach shows us here is this, that if we want to get to his identity, right? That's the goal. Who is Jesus and what are you going to do with him? Our initiative and our interests are absolutely essential. No one's ever come knocking on my door, even though they know I'm a pastor, saying, who is this Jesus? Tell me all about him. I want to get saved. People don't do that. We have to take the initiative. Speak into it. Relate to them. Listen to them. Be willing to follow where they lead. And so, if we ever want to get to the issue of his identity and do it with legitimacy and do it with certainty and do it in a way that they might actually want to respond, well, there's part of a process here that Jesus is unfolding for us. Again, They don't care what you know unless they're sure that you care. And that's what this story is all about, which in turn brings us to the third of our three L's this morning. The lady, her spiritual journey that she's on from lost to found, the Lord, and the way he had a conversation with her. Well, then what are, third and finally, the lessons for us today? 
What can we take from this story that will help us if we are serious, if we are interested in in the the quest to, to living as witnesses for Jesus Christ? What are the lessons? Well, you know, it goes without saying, at least I hope it does, that none of us is Jesus, right? and says, none of us are Jesus, I will grant you, I understand. We don't have, when we're talking to someone else, even someone we don't well, we can't read their heart the way Jesus could, right? We don't know the backstory the way that, that Jesus clearly did here. We are not going to, let's just get it right out there if we haven't already, we're not going to have an answer to every one of their questions. We're not going to have the perfect response to, as they weave and, and we follow and Jesus could do things in conversation that we couldn't because of who he was, and I get that. We certainly can't ever say to, to, say to him, I who speak to you am he, all right? There are certain disadvantages we have in these conversations. But there are several things we can take from this story, from his example, that can help us live as witnesses every day because... What I believe this encounter shows us, again, three things. You're getting a nine-point sermon today. Did you know that? I've not done that before. Nine. I'm impressed, even if you're not. Anyway, <laughs> what this encounter shows us, first of all, is this. We are surrounded by opportunities. If this story teaches us anything, it is that we are surrounded every day by opportunities for witness. Look again at verse 35. Because a lot of people think, and, and I, I, I like this and I'm inclined to agree, a lot of people think that when Jesus said to the disciples, behold, I say to you, halfway through verse 35, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. What Jesus was actually doing was he was shifting their, their, their actual physical eyes to this crowd of Middle Eastern men in their white Middle Eastern robes who are making their way up the path to the well. And he's literally saying, look, they're white for harvest. Here, here it comes, guys. Because what did he see that they weren't seeing yet? Single word, opportunity. People. An opportunity. The opportunity to speak with people who are somewhere on the journey from lost to found. And maybe today is the day they're willing to discuss it. To consider it. And, and listen, on, on any given day... It may not be likely that you rub shoulders with somebody who's ready to, you know, as it were, bow the knee, pray the prayer, trust Christ as Savior. You may not meet somebody like that every day, but I bet every day most of us rub shoulders with people who are jaded about religion, who are, are sick of the grind, who have decided there is no meaning or hope or purpose in life, no matter how much they've accomplished or accumulated or achieved. There are people who believe that love isn't possible, Again, you know some people like that? I bet you do. And, and maybe today's the day they're willing to talk about it, to open up about it. If you take the initiative and show some interest, I think what Jesus is asking us to do in this story by implication is lift up our eyes. At some point, we lift our eyes up from the Bible. At some point, we lift our eyes up from the prayer meeting. At some time, from the Bible study. And we go out into the world. And we see the opportunities all around us every day. We are surrounded by opportunities. Secondly, I think Jesus wants us to recognize in this story that we're part of a bigger plan. We are part. And we talked a lot about this in our first evangelism shift series, but we need to keep coming back to it. Because 
In, in verse 38, when Jesus says, look at your Bible again, verse 38, I sent you to reap, he's talking to the disciples, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. What Jesus is doing is he's affirming the theme of this series. The journey from lost, to, uh, the path from lost to found, it is a journey, okay? And there are multiple steps along the way. And I think what he's doing in this particular scene is he's cautioning the disciples because they are about to participate in reaping a pretty cool spiritual harvest. A lot of these men coming out, and we would assume going back to the village because it says Jesus stayed there two more days, are going to decide for Christ. They're going to believe and be saved. What I think Jesus is doing is going, guys, this is really cool, and it's great to be part of, but let's not think too highly of ourselves here because you're entering into the labor someone else started. You are part of a master plan. He's not saying you don't matter. He's just saying just because you get to close the deal, you don't matter more. Because it's a journey. And while we aren't shown their backstory any more than we're shown the woman's backstory, I think it's, it's safe to assume that the fact that they would be ready when they met Jesus indicates God had been working in their hearts for quite a while people and circumstance and joys and sorrows, preparing them for the good news that they need. And, and honestly, for me, again, just speaking for myself, that's one of the, the greatest discoveries that I have made through evangelism shift, because in all the evangelism training I've ever received, and I've been through a lot, okay? I've been through a lot. I've only ever been taught how to close the deal. Here's the three things you need to believe. Do you pray this prayer? And, and, and listen, we need to know that. We need to know how to help somebody do that. But that's not all we need to know. Because most of the people we bear witness to aren't there yet. Some are, but many aren't. And, and what, God, what Jesus is saying here is that God's design is that every step on the journey matters. So that, here's why we know that. Go back to verse 36. So that on the day someone does trust Christ, man, woman, or child, here's the idea, verse 36, that the one who sows and the one who reaps may rejoice, what's the next word in your Bible? Together. So that they may rejoice together. Yes, that the person got saved, but yes, that God had a part for me and he had a different part for you. But isn't it cool how he works all things together? to bring a person to that point. I'm pretty sure that whenever you trusted Christ, it wasn't just one person's doing that God used. And, and God wants us to know that even if all you ever do is get to crack open the conversation, you listen. Maybe you offer, you say, you know, there is a God who loves you. Listen, that's a huge, huge seed to plant in their heart. It matters. It matters. Because, and this is the, the last thing, and this is, I trust, not new information to us. But ultimately what this story reminds us is that it is when people meet Jesus that lives are changed. When people meet Jesus, that's when their lives are changed. And I don't think anything in the last four verses could be clearer. From that city, verse 39, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, saying, he told me all that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he did for two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, listen, no offense, but it's not because of what you said that we believe, for we've now heard it for ourselves. And we know that this one is indeed the Savior 
of the world because of him. And I think among a number of things we could draw out of that, I think one of the the biggest is, is to understand that that is why when we find ourselves in divine appointments, whoa, didn't see it coming, but all of a sudden we're talking about spiritual stuff. When we find ourselves in those divine appointments and we aren't sure where the conversation's going and we aren't sure if we're going to be able to answer the next question and, and we kind of think maybe we flubbed up the answer to the last one and it just feels like a bit of a spiritual train wreck and we're not exactly sure anything good can come out of it. Listen, you know what you do in those moments? It's really cool. You've got the Holy Spirit so you can do this. You can just silently, even as you're continuing to listen, pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, just show me what to say next. Show me what not to say next. And listen, if God wants them to get there, he is going to make sure that they get there. When people meet Jesus, lives are changed. You know, maybe one of the really, and I'll share this with you in closing, maybe one of the coolest things about this story is the fact that with, without even realizing it, think of this. This woman, the woman at the well, in verses 28 and 29, she's already living as a witness, even though she has not yet come to faith herself. Isn't that cool? I mean, look again at verses 28 and 29. The woman left her water pot. Remember, the last thing we heard, there was a, a little discussion about, about uh, her love life, and, and then there's a little discussion about which mountain we should worship on. Jesus says, I speak to you, you and me. It doesn't say that she bowed to her knees at the feet of Jesus and, and asked him to be her savior. No, it says she dropped her water pot and ran into town. And what did she do when she got there? She said to the men, come see a man who told me all things I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? And yet, I, yet I'm not quite sure, but, but come, let's figure this out together. She's not even saved yet, and she's living as a witness. She's talking about Jesus. And what she does here is exactly what it means to live as a witness. Listen, I've learned something. I've discovered something. Let me tell you what I've found in him. She told others what she knew. They went to Jesus and they believed. And that's why the big idea this morning is, is this, and I hope this comes as great encouragement to you. We live as witnesses. Jesus does the rest. We live as witnesses. We do our part in their journey. Big, small, start, finish, somewhere in between. We live as witnesses. Jesus does the rest. Isn't that how it worked for you? That worked for me. We're just invited to be in on the plan. Father, would you help us, help me, Lord, to recognize the fact that, Lord, as we often talk about, we need to remember that we're in a battle, but we also, Father, much more need to recognize that we're surrounded by opportunities. Father, that, that our job as believers in this world isn't just to fight off wickedness and evil. It is to be light in the darkness, to be water in, in people's dry and weary land, the land of their barren souls. And Father, as we are given opportunity to take initiative and show interest, Father, that, that maybe today... Maybe today we'll get to talk to somebody and share with them a little bit or maybe even a whole lot about Jesus. Father, thank you that for each of us here who knows you today, there were people in our lives who did that for us, that they took the initiative, that they showed interest, 
And Father, though they weren't perfect and didn't have all the answers and may have let us down at other times too, you never know, Father, but, but even so they were faithful and you used them and our lives are never the same. Father, help us begin to see living as a witness, not as a responsibility, but as the adventure that it is. The adventure of never knowing on any given day when we might get to bear witness for you. Father, take the things of truth that we have looked at here this morning and bind them up in our hearts and move them to our hands and feet and let all the rest just slip away so that we leave looking to and in obedience to Jesus alone in whose name we pray.